This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. Today, we're going to explore the final years in the life and career of Judy Garland, who died 45 years ago this month of an accidental overdose at the age of 47. After you've gone and left me crying, after you've gone, there's no denying you feel blue, you feel sad, you'll miss the bestest pal you ever had. But we're going to begin with a tale from a Hollywood party, circa the mid-1960s, read by Noah Segan. The following from a screenwriter. I can't explain her appeal, but I saw it work once in this crazy way. I was at a party in Malibu, my first big Hollywood, let's all get slowly smashed on Sunday type party. And there were all these famous faces, and I hid behind a Bloody Mary in the corner. There were a lot of actors there, and the word on them was that they were queer. But this was a boy-girl party. Everyone was paired off, and all these beautiful men and gorgeous broads were talking and drinking together. Anyway, everything's going along, and it's sunny, and I'm getting a little buzzed in my corner position when this star-type female goes by me. I naturally look at her, and she's wearing this fantastically loose-knit sweater. I don't know what the hell it was, but there wasn't a lot of it. And also, there's no bra, and these famous breasts are bouncing by. I'd never seen any before. I mean, not famous ones anyway, and they weren't much, and I was thinking deep thoughts about that when I realized... Garland was in the room. Well, it's a patio, not a room, and there's a chase in the center. And the guy she's with, one of her husbands, he sort of supports her across the patio, and she plops down on this chase, and she says what she wants to drink, and he goes off to get it. I'm in the corner now, remember, and she's sitting all alone in the center of this patio, and for a minute, there was nothing. And then this crazy thing started to happen. Every homosexual in the place, every guy you'd heard whispered about all these stars, they left the girls they were with and started a mass move towards Garland. She didn't ask for it. She was just sitting there, blinking in the sun while this thing happened. All these beautiful men, some of them big stars, some of them not so big, they circled her, crowded around her, and pretty soon she's disappeared behind this expensive male fence. It may not sound like all that much, but I'm telling you, she magnetized them. I'll never forget all those famous secret guys moving across this gorgeous patio without a sound and her just sitting there, kind of blinking. 
and then they were on her, and she was gone. That story comes from the first chapter of the season, an anthropological study of the 1967-1968 Broadway season written by William Goldman, the future screenwriter of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, The Princess Bride, and many more films. This isn't Goldman's own story. He's quoting a screenwriter friend who he leaves unnamed. The screenwriter, of course, doesn't name names either, except for Judy Garland's. It's an eyewitness account with no eye. Goldman's writing on Garland, and particularly her gay fan base, can be problematic, as we'll see a little bit later. But this vignette offers us a window onto some of the dynamics of both the sexual politics of the time, and maybe more importantly, the way those dynamics were narrativized by straight men, who were then still the voice of mainstream culture. It was that culture and its modes of telling stories about anyone it perceived to be an outsider, its way of churning real human lives into fodder for an endless imaginary cocktail party, that by the mid-1960s, had turned Garland, once one of the biggest and unquestionably the most talented stars of MGM musicals of the 1940s, into something of a punchline, her very name a shorthand for self-destruction. By the time of her death, it had been seven years since Judy Garland had starred in her last film. Garland's health, physical, emotional, financial, had declined over the last years of her life, but right up to the end, she never stopped working. In fact, she spent the last years of her life cementing the legacy that would make her, in death, a massive gay icon, to the extent that there's a pervasive idea that her funeral, which took place in Manhattan on the morning of June 27, 1969, had a direct relationship to the riots and protests at the Stonewall Inn, which started later that night and which is usually cited as the flashpoint for the modern gay liberation movement. To understand the connection, emotional and or actual, between the death of a movie star and a culture-changing rebellion, we have to talk about how Judy Garland evolved from sexless child star to problem ingenue, how she mounted one triumphant comeback after another, only to spend her last years in a virtual Hollywood exile, which had its own triumphs, stretching from Carnegie Hall to Stonewall. Join us, won't you? as we explore the many lives, deaths, and afterlives of Judy Garland. Be kind to your mind with guided meditations from the Meditation for Women podcast. Your mental health benefits from sleeping better, releasing anxiety, and gaining clarity, all of which are benefits of meditation. And since this is Mental Health Awareness Month, give yourself the gift of meditations. All you have to do is press play and close your eyes. Listen to Meditation for Women on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Judy Garland became a superstar at the age of 17 in 1939 with the release of The Wizard of Oz. But by that time, she was already an MGM veteran. She had been signed to a contract at age 13 and was soon slotted into a number of Andy Hardy films alongside Mickey Rooney, odes to pre-war teenage innocence in which the plucky pair inevitably managed to save the day through some combination of all-American ingenuity and song-and-dance sass. The Andy Hardy films were purposefully sexless and pristine, but their productions were bastions of studio-sanctioned sex and drugs that would scar Judy Garland for life. Judy, like all the kid performers, was given pep pills by the studio in order to help her power through grueling shooting schedules, as well as downers to ensure she got her beauty sleep between calls. 
on screen, Garland always played the girl next door with a harmless but unrequited crush on Rooney's Andy Hardy. Off screen, while pint-sized Mickey Rooney somehow screwed all the more glamorous girls on the lot, Judy was forced to wear a fake nose, nicknamed My Little Hunchback by Louis B. Mayer, and constantly told to reduce. Anne Helen Peterson writes about Judy Garland's branding as an ugly duckling in her new book, Scandals of Classic Hollywood. The way that her face looked just didn't take to that sort of, like, glamming up. I mean, she didn't look like the rest of those MGM stars. And, like, uh, Mickey Rooney just, like, rejecting her over and over again. And even, like, the plots in those movies, like, how he just, like, rejects her over and over again. Also, she becomes kind of this... uh, avatar for the rejected, not pretty, like, you know, not sexy, not pretty enough person. For Judy, there was no off-the-clock escape from her at-work insecurities. In 1940, Garland fell in love with musician Artie Shaw, who eventually left her for Rooney's ex, Lana Turner. Over the next five years, Mickey Rooney would marry Ava Gardner, who soon after her divorce from him, married Artie Shaw. So essentially, Artie Shaw traded Judy Garland in for not one, but two of the MGM starlets to whom she was constantly being told by her bosses that she could never measure up. No wonder she accepted an engagement ring from band leader David Rose on her 18th birthday. No wonder when that marriage broke up, she next married Vincent Minnelli, her director on Meet Me in St. Louis, the first film in which she felt really beautiful. That marriage produced a child, Liza, but Minnelli and Garland were a bad match in more ways than one, and by the late 1940s, Garland's studio-sparked reliance on pills, usually washed down with booze, was catching up with her. She suffered a nervous breakdown in 1947 while filming The Pirate, attempting suicide for the first time by grazing her wrists. Overwork and emotional insecurity and addiction and even postpartum depression were probably at the core of her problems, but... Several biographies of both Garland and Minnelli repeat the by-now-mythic report that this first attempt at self-harm happened just after Garland returned home from the studio one night and found Vincent in their bed with another man. Whatever the truth was, Judy entered a sanitarium, then joined Fred Astaire in Easter Parade, one of her best light musicals. She's toothpick-thin in the movie— And you can tell by the way she moves in it that everyone was telling her she looked great. Over the next few years, she was in and out of hospitals and in and out of MGM productions. She'd be assigned to a movie, and after her chronic lateness, absenteeism, and general frailty caused enough delays, she'd be fired and replaced by someone else. Even when she was well, she wasn't what they wanted. She showed up on the set of Summerstock, fresh from a stint in recovery, happy and ready to work, until she was told she was too fat to face the cameras. We tried to make her look as thin as possible, said costume designer Walter Plunkett, but we weren't miracle workers. So back Judy went on the pep pills, which made her skinny, but also crazy. Frumpy and overall clad for much of the movie, by the time she shot the film's last number, Get Happy, in a tuxedo jacket and no pants, she'd lost so much weight that she looked like a different person. When she had to be replaced by Jane Powell in the 1950 Fred Astaire musical Royal Wedding, MGM dropped her contract. Garland was so distraught, she slashed her neck with a broken glass. This became big news. 
partially because MGM issued a press release downplaying the wounds as superficial, but playing up Garland's quote-unquote hysteria. Fan and gossip magazines started to publish exposés slash editorials in faux concern over Garland's stability. Even in what seems like a surprising move for a press so controlled by the studios, pointing the finger at MGM for creating a monster, first by feeding the teenage Judy pills, and later by constantly stoking her insecurities. According to Anne Helen Peterson, this was par for the course for the media at the time. I mean, she was behaving a certain way, and the task of like the, the gossip press is always, okay, if this if the star is behaving publicly this way, we and like you know, is dropping out of movies. We can't cover that up. So how are we going to narrativize what's happening? And so a really easy way to do that is to, like, go back to her childhood and talk about, like, what had happened to her in um, over the course of the 40s. But Peter Mack, a Judy Garland tribute artist who has been doing uncanny replications of Garland's live performances for over a decade, he says the media's hand-wringing over Judy's behavior tended to exaggerate the tragedy. You know, she didn't even do enough. She, she clearly did not want to hurt herself um, in that instance. Um, it, it really was just a cry for attention because she didn't do anything that could have really done any real damage to her. She was just crying out for help. But of course, the press had a field day with that, with that kind of thing. Nineteen fifty was a turning point for Judy Garland. The end of her relationship with MGM was equivalent to the end of her film career as she had known it. Losing her status as a contract player meant losing access to a steady stream of starring vehicles. And it also meant that she was no longer the beneficiary of a studio's propaganda machine or its protective efforts. She was absent from movie screens for four years, and then in 1954, made a much heralded comeback as the star of A Star is Born. The night is bitter, the stars have lost their glitter, the winds grow colder, suddenly you're older. Directed by George Cooker, A Star is Born is a three-hour, epic musical melodrama in which Garland plays Esther, a talented singer who finds love and fame thanks to Norman Maine, an alcoholic superstar played by James Mason. As Esther's star rises... Norman's fades amidst his own out-of-control behavior. At the beginning of the film's final act, Esther wins an Oscar, and Norman, the original Kanye, drunkenly crashes the stage to tell the assembled Hollywood elite the awful truth. I made a lot of money for you, gentlemen, in my time through the years, haven't I? Well, I need a job now. Yeah, that's it. That's, that's, that's the speech. That's it. I need a job. That's what I wanted to say. I, I need a job. Later, in between takes of an intentionally ridiculous, rousing song and dance number in which she's dressed as a street urchin, Esther breaks down in despair over her husband's inability to get his shit together and her inability to help him. You don't know what it's like to watch somebody you love just crumble away bit by bit, day by day in front of your eyes and stand there helpless. Love isn't enough. I, I thought it was. I thought I was the answer for Norman. Sometimes I hate him. 
hate his promises to stop. And then the watching and waiting to see it begin again. I hate me, too. I hate me. Because I failed, too. I have. A Star is Born is probably the most cynical and legitimately heartbreaking movie about Hollywood that Hollywood has ever made. It contains some of Garland's most virtuosic singing and gives her unprecedented opportunity to show what she could do as a dramatic actress. At MGM, she had essentially been typecast as a teenager until her final film, Summerstock, in which she was suddenly, not so subtly, coded as a past-her-prime matron who had let life pass her by. A Star is Born was really the first film in which Judy Garland played an adult woman who got to live a life. A life that had enough similarities to Judy Garland's own life that audiences felt like they were being let in on private, authentic emotion. And she absolutely kills it. But the movie cost a lot of money to make. Not least because Judy was still an addict, and she still wasn't able to show up for work every day. Garland's third husband, Sid Luft, had set up a deal to produce A Star is Born at Warner Brothers without Garland having to sign a long-term contract with the studio. But that meant the studio had no incentive to protect their investment in Judy or the movie. Though initial ticket sales were brisk, the movie was so long that it could only be shown so many times a day. After A Star is Born had already opened, Warner Brothers pulled the film from release and put a butchered cut back in theaters in a desperate attempt to recoup the movie's massive costs through extra showtimes. Whole musical numbers were lost, as was some crucial narrative connective tissue. In hindsight, the butchery of A Star is Born seems like the logical reason why Judy Garland failed to win the Best Actress Oscar for the movie, even though it's undoubtedly her greatest performance. Of course, when it comes to the Oscars, actual quality has never been a major motivating factor. But the awards do tell us how Hollywood wants to be seen and what it values. And that year, in showing that they valued the pristine glamour of Grace Kelly over the messy, painfully emotionally raw Judy, the movie industry effectively refused to publicly sanction Judy Garland's continuing movie stardom. If this was the point when Judy Garland's movie stardom started to fade, it was also the point where a flip switched on a different type of stardom. Film historian Richard Dyer has argued that with the highly publicized suicide attempt and the break from MGM, the fact that she's damaged goods becomes part of Judy Garland's star persona. And from then on, in everything that she does, Garland is telling a story about struggle and survival and trying to assert some kind of agency in a system that's set up to demean and destroy her. In the last decade of her life, says Anne Helen Peterson, Judy Garland was all but dropped by the Hollywood-sanctioned fan press. She disappears from the fan magazines. Well, there's two reasons for that. One is that the fan magazines just basically started covering only teen idols and Jackie Kennedy and Liz Taylor, but also because she wasn't in movies anymore. They wanted to cover glamorous people leading interesting, glamorous lives, and that was not what Judy Garland was doing. What was she doing? Post-MGM in the early 1950s, Garland had returned to her vaudeville roots, mounting a show at the Palladium in London, which she referred to as an autobiography and song. It was a massive success and literally set the stage for a number of landmark live performances, most notably in April 1961 at Carnegie Hall. Don't know why 
The recording of this show became a huge hit record, which led to a weekly TV variety hour called The Judy Garland Show in 1963 and 1964. Unfortunately, The Judy Garland Show was canceled due to low ratings. It was programmed opposite Bonanza. And so Judy hit the road for a tour of Australia and ended up taking her concert promoter, Mark Herron, as her fourth husband. That didn't last long. And by 1966, Garland was single again, a four-time divorcee. She was hired to star in the movie of The Valley of the Dolls, and then fired, and that would be her last shot at movie stardom. But she continually booked concert gigs because there was consistent demand for them. Peter Mack has based a large part of his Judy Garland tribute act on these live shows in the 1960s, and he's studied this portion of her career extensively. Definitely peaks. Her career was peaks and valleys in the 60s. I mean, she made <laughs> another comeback in, at, by playing Carnegie Hall on April 23rd, 1961. This was after she had had a, a horrible bout with hepatitis, had, had blown up uh, to the size of a balloon, and they, they drained quarts and quarts of, of fluid from her body and said she would never work again, that she would be a semi-invalid the rest of her life, and most certainly she would never work again. And then she went ahead and she rose the roof on Carnegie Hall and uh, and started this whole new leg of, of concert tours. They were like revival meetings, uh, that people were standing on their chairs trying to unscrew the light bulbs <laughs> that were on the, you know, on the stage, and that it was a mix of, of every age, you know, people from eight to 80, and of every walk of life, gay, straight, black, white, you know, it was just this kind of a love fest. Um, there were definitely a few of them that were a little bit uh, tumultuous. There were times when Judy was too ill to be on stage, where she should not have been allowed to have gone on stage, and of course, people love to, to bring those up and, and uh, kind of over-dramatize. Uh, what was going on. Um, so there were, there were a few instances like that, but far and few between. Throughout this period, the press routinely attacked Garland for keeping audiences waiting and generally behaving erratically. These attacks stung, particularly since Garland was painfully broke, her fortune having been funneled into the pockets of bad business managers and the IRS. And she was working her ass off, working much harder than a star of her stature should have to, just to pay basic bills. Around this time, Garland started making audio recordings with the idea of getting her own version of her life story on the record for a potential autobiography. The book never happened, but excerpts from the tapes were released after Garland's death. Now, uh... In one of the most famous sections, she struggles with the tape recorder itself. I'm just astounded at this machine. This is the silliest way I've ever known of spending the nights alone talking to yourself into an obvious Nazi machine. But that's the story of my life. You go with it even if you don't know what's going on. Keep talking, singing, smiling, and taping. Tape machine. It should be Johnson and Johnson's tapes. My wounds I'd like to tape. Throughout the tapes, Judy's obsessed with making her voice heard. I have a rather good intellect. I have a good 
sense of humor, but it's high time to cut the comedy and high time to stop the trolley ride because I, Judy Garland, I'm going to talk. And everybody just better sit on the bench and watch the ball game. Being Judy Garland, sure, I've been loved by the public. I can't take the public home with me. And I've been ripped to pieces, ripped to pieces by the public and the critics and the newspapers and people who don't know what they're talking about. And I demand, I demand to be heard. I will be heard and I'll keep talking for the rest of my life because now I can talk. Now I'm happy. Now I know that there is no gaslight in my life and the people who try to present it are the criminals. The disappointment of these tapes is that Judy keeps telling us she's going to set the record straight, but she never really gets around to doing so. She's too riled up. And it all comes down to the unholy dollar. Well, I'll always be able to make money, but I'll keep it. It's important to remember that this Judy, the defensive and openly angry Judy, was not the Judy that the public saw during the last years of her life, in her live shows and in television shows beamed into people's homes, where she was forming intimate, emotional connections with fans who felt protective of her. When she hit television and did the series, which is a shame that it that she wasn't treated better by CBS, but that certainly put her in everybody's living room week after week. You do feel like it's a family member. One demographic that was forming a particularly strong emotional connection to Garland at this time was that of gay men. Definitely, definitely there was a large uh, contingency of of gay men in the audience. Um, Or I think it was one reporter who said the men in tight trousers. Here's another excerpt from William Goldman's This Season, in which the author describes the scene at Garland's final show in a run at the Palace Theater in 1967. Another flutter of fags, half a dozen this time, and watching it all from a corner, two heterosexual married couples. These fags, the first man says. It's like Auschwitz. Some of them died along the way, but a lot got here anyhow. He turns to the other husband and shrugs. Tonight, no one goes to the bathroom. This was published in 1969, weeks after Garland's death. Now, of course, this was before homophobia was even codified as a thing, And before a guy like Goldman would have any real sense that his presentation of this overheard bigotry without comment would exacerbate the problem. But let's not let him off the hook. Goldman gives equal eye-rolling condescension to Garland and the quote-unquote obvious homosexuals who he estimates made up a quarter of her audience that night. And he wasn't the only one around this time to imply that the association between Garland and a gay audience was evidence of the low standards of both of them. It's notable that Garland herself didn't think this way. When she was cornered by a, by a reporter in San Francisco who said, I understand that you have a very large gay following, Miss Garland, she was very PC about it and said, I sing to people, gay, straight, black or white, we're all just people. That's, that's, that's who I sing to. It's I relate to everybody. One of the reasons why being denigrated by the press made Judy so upset was that she didn't know what was going to happen. She didn't think she was going to die. 
She had come back so many times from so many different things that there very well could have been another upswing. And the autobiography tapes show that she wanted to get her rep in check because she assumed she was going to live a lot more life. Certainly by 1969, she was, you know, down in the dregs, but still had this wonderful attitude about, well, it can only get better from here. Over the last few months of her life, she was still trying, trying at love, trying to work. By spring 1969, Garland had taken a fifth husband, Mickey Deans, a much younger guy who Garland had met when he had served as a runner for her pill dealer. They moved to London, where Garland had booked a five-week nightclub gig. The morning of June 22nd, Deans woke up, realized that Garland wasn't in bed, and knocked on the door to her bathroom. No answer. He looked through the window and saw what he thought was his wife asleep on the toilet. She wasn't asleep. Judy Garland was pronounced dead of an accidental overdose on June 22, 1969, at the age of 47. Her body was flown to New York, where it was on view at a Manhattan funeral home Thursday and Friday, June 26th and 27th. The funeral was on Friday, and it was an A-list affair. Frank Sinatra, Cary Grant, and Lauren Bacall were there. James Mason gave the eulogy. But over those two days, thousands of non-stars gathered in and around the funeral home, flooding the streets and sidewalks outside. According to the New York Times, the demographics ran the gamut. Elderly women, weeping young men, teenaged girls, housewives, nuns, priests, beggars, cripples, and hippies. The gay men in the crowd recognized one another. There were a lot of them, and they weren't in a dark bar or even a self-contained concert hall. They were out on the street in the middle of the day, together, in plain sight of a lot of other different people, and they were all united for the same purpose. Cut to later that night, after midnight, so technically Saturday morning. The Stonewall Inn was a gay bar in the West Village of New York, and like most gay bars at that time, it was run by the mafia, meaning it was technically not a bar at all, but a social club, and patrons had to sign in at the door. The crowd, which included some of the homeless kids known to spend their nights in nearby Christopher Street Park, plus drag queens, hustlers, transsexuals, and other outcasts who did not yet have an organized LGBT community to identify themselves with, they often signed in with fake names, and reportedly, a lot of them chose as their pseudonym, Judy Garland. On that Friday night slash Saturday morning at about 1 a.m., Stonewall Inn was raided by police. Gay bar raids were common enough in the late 60s, But something on this night was different. On this night, the crowd at the Stonewall Inn fought back. As police waited for a paddy wagon to take the so-called criminals away, a crowd began to gather on the street, taunting the cops, throwing beer bottles. A few bar patrons dressed as women refused to allow police officers to confirm their anatomical details. The crowd swelled to hundreds of people. The police were totally outnumbered, and they barricaded themselves inside the bar, along with a Village Voice reporter and, weirdly, Dave Van Ronk, the straight folk singer who inspired the Coen Brothers movie Inside Lewin Davis. While the humiliated fuzz cowered inside the stone wall, the crowd outside the bar sang, danced, chanted, threw some shit, lit some other shit on fire. They painted graffiti on the outside of the bar, slogans like drag power and legalize gay bars. The next night... The bar opened as usual, 
and even more people came to continue what they started the night before. A year later, to commemorate what would become known as the Stonewall Riots, gay pride celebrations were launched for the first time, and their spontaneous refusal to be bullied and criminalized On June 28, 1969, the Stonewall patrons unwittingly launched the modern gay rights movement. Peter Mack wasn't there that night, but he's dedicated his adult life to giving Judy Garland new life after death, and he's heard some stories. The raids had gotten out of control in the weeks leading up to it. Everybody was up at Campbell's funeral home in those those two days. Uh, you know, the streets were lined, and, you know, that, that's what was being talked about at the Stonewall Inn that night was, you know, was Judy and, and the loss of this great icon. And it was the president of the, uh, of the Stonewall uh, Veterans Society, his name escapes me, who said, we had had enough. We had had enough. And so when the, the bar got raided again, we thought... Well, we've just lost our icon. What else have we got to lose? People started fighting back. Another gentleman said you could hear people out in the streets saying, St. Judy, St. Judy, pray for us. Now, some historians have dismissed the idea of a connection between the movie star's funeral and the world-changing riot. Bob Kohler, the founder of the post-Stonewall activist group Gay Liberation Front, insisted that there couldn't have been a connection because the riot at Stonewall was started by disenfranchised street kids for whom Judy Garland was old person music. I get upset about this, Kohler said, because it trivializes the whole thing. That said, in 1971, a Gay Liberation Front newsletter published an essay about Garland's career without explanation or disclaimer because Richard Dyer, who was on the editorial board of the newsletter, said it just seemed obvious that a straightforward accounting of Judy's life and work had a place in a radical post-Stonewall publication. Here's Anne Helen Peterson again. It's one of many factors that helped foment what happened that night. What I've read is, like, different people who were there who have said that, like, you know, no, we weren't, like, rioting because Judy Garland died, but yes, like, there was an energy in the air after, you know, to all of us, like, thinking about her death and people who had, like, a, like you know, uh, were drinking after the funeral. So it makes sense to me that that would be, that would fuel emotions that had already been there. People who say that it trivializes it to say that it's connected to Judy Garland don't understand how stars and other cultural objects can have tremendous meaning and inertia towards things. And here's Peter Mack. I don't think it trivializes it. I don't think it trivializes it, no. I think to know how important she was to the gay community, the fact that she did have a gay following, it hadn't happened 10 years before, 15 years before, 20 years before. There, there was a link. There was a, you know, there was a connection. A lot of Judy stories, as with so many old Hollywood stories, seem to exist in this hazy space of smoke and wish fulfillment. They may be total bullshit, but sometimes the more mythic they are, the more they feel true. And the feeling might be all that matters especially when it comes to Judy Garland, who may be more than any star of her lifetime, and certainly uniquely so in her life after death, is larger than life. Which in itself is remarkable, because what makes her exciting as a performer is the sense that she's channeling her own life experience through song. She's seen to live so many lives, to stare down death literally and professionally, over and over again, and somehow survive. Until the day that she didn't. And subsequently, 
became even larger in actual death than in life. As one always should, let's give Judy herself the last word. One, two, one, two, three. Oh, it works. Who cares if the sun cares to fall in the sea? Who cares what bags fail in yonder? As long as you got a kiss that conquers, why should I care? Life is one long jubilee. As long as I care for you and you care for me. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and edited by Karina Longworth. That's me. Excerpts from William Goldman's The Season were read by Noah Segan. And our interview subjects were Anne Helen Peterson and Peter Mack. You can find out more information about our guests and their work in the show notes to this episode, which are available at our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Good night. one is sort of a striptease temper. We don't do it. We just talk about it. Uh, so, oh, heck. No, not in Carnegie Hall. It wouldn't look wrong at all. Somebody moans. Do you moan? Do you? Well, then, when you've finished moaning, what tempo? Yeah, now moan, really moan. <laughs> <laughs>